This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to another episode of New Books in Japanese Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I am Jingyi Lee from the University of Arizona. Today, our guest is Dr. Michael Boydash from the University of Chicago. Michael is a scholar of modern Japanese literature. His new book, A Fictional Commons, Natsume Soseki and the Properties of Modern Literature, was published by Duke University Press this year. This book focuses on the famous early modern Japanese writer Natsume Soseki and how literature provided a venue for Soseki to comprehend and reimagine the new property law, wealth, or in an even larger context, modernity. So welcome, Michael. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us today on the channel. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Jingyi. I'm delighted to be here. So um, you've written quite a few books on Japanese literature throughout your career. Um, recently, what has your research interest been? Uh, lately, I've been working on a, uh, a new project, thinking about the Cold War and trying to rethink what Japanese literature, culture, film, music uh, of the Cold War era means in, in I'm, I'm not happy with the way that that era, including in my own work, how that era has been studied. And so I'm trying to do it in a more interesting way. Sounds like a great topic. And for our listeners who may not be familiar with Japanese literature or um, the protagonist of this book, Natsume Soseki, could you give us a brief introduction of him? Sure. Uh, Soseki is usually, I, I should maybe start with his dates. He was born in 1867. He died in 1916, so uh, just about a century ago. He's usually proclaimed as, as Japan's greatest modern novelist. Uh, there, of course, there's some critics that really hate him, but for the most part, I think it, it's, it's pretty common to claim him as, as the greatest or one of the greatest. Uh, and I think in, in recent years, we're also starting to realize more that he was also a really important theorist of literature, someone who stood back from literature and tried to think what literature was. Uh, he's best known for about a dozen full-length novels that were published in the last decade of his life. I think another thing to say about him is he's unusual in that he is he's critically acclaimed uh, both 
during his lifetime and, and ever since as, as one of the great novelists of, of modern Japan. But he's also always been really popular and remains really popular uh, today. People read him for pleasure today in, in Japan very, very commonly. Um, usually a writer has to choose. You can be really popular or you can be really, really critically acclaimed, but you can't be both. But he's one of the rare ones that is actually both. Um, and when I introduce him to my students, I, I always bring uh, a, a 1,000 yen note uh, from the period of 1984 to 2004. His face was on the 1,000 yen note in Japan, which gives you a sense of how important he was in Japan. I think in the United States, the best a writer can do is a postage stamp. Uh, but in, in Japan, his face was actually on the money. I guess a, a, a couple of other things I'd say about him is one of the things that's, that's very common for people to point out is he belongs to the last generation who received sort of a traditional education, primary education, uh, memorizing the Chinese classics by rote, learning to recite. Uh, and then in his adolescence sort of switched to the modern uh, European-based education system, went through the elite university system. So he really was lived through the transition from one sort of intellectual and cultural world to another intellectual cultural world and felt at home or felt not at home in both of them kind of equally, but that uh, that that historical uh, background is is really crucial, I think, to to his his understanding. And for me, he he's uh, he's he's just my my favorite writer in in the world. And I I first discovered him in in 1984 when I went to Japan for the first time as 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 an exchange student. And and I'd read some Japanese literature before I went to Japan. I'd read Kawabata and Tanizaki and, and Mishima and folks like that. Um, and to be honest, I hadn't really liked them very much. And and I got to Japan and I met the teachers who were going to be uh, working with me for my, my year in, in Sendai. And, and one of my teachers, Matsumoto Sensei, I asked him what I should read next. And I told him what I had read. And he said, you, sh you should read Soseki. Uh, and I went downtown in Sendai to the Marozen bookstore and, and bought a copy of, of Kusamakura or uh, The Three-Cornered World in Alan Turney's translation, uh, just following Matsumoto Sensei's recommendation and started reading it on the bus uh, on the way back uh, to campus that afternoon and couldn't stop reading it and sort of stayed awake late in the night reading the book straight through and then went to bed and woke up in the morning and read it again. And I thought it was the most interesting book I'd ever read. Uh, and I always wonder if, if Matsumoto Sensei had said I should read someone else like Mori Ogai or Akhtagawa or someone like that, I probably would not have become a professor of Japanese literature. Uh, he, I don't know if it was just coincidence. Maybe he told everyone to read Natsume Soseki, but the fact that he, he pointed me in that direction was really uh, decisive for me in, in, in my life. Well, that's wonderful to hear. I'm glad you picked up that book that day. Um, I know a lot of my students from the Japanese language class always mention their, they, that uh, their first encounter with Japanese literature was uh, Natsume Soseki's Wagahai wa Neko Dearu, I Am a Cat, um, which is interesting that they read the book and they decided to get into studying Japanese language, um, which is modern Japanese language is a bit different from the kind of language that Soseki was using. It's true, although I've also found him, he's easy to read in Japanese. I, I don't think I Am a Cat is necessarily easy to read, but his later works, I, I don't know why this is. Uh, when I read him, I as, as a non-native speaker of Japanese, I don't have to use the dictionary as often as I do with even some contemporary writers. Um, so his prose is older, but there's something, at least for me, that's very lucid and 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 
I, I know exactly what he's trying to say. Oftentimes I feel, and I, I don't always feel that way with, with Japanese writers. Well, that's great. Um, so you mentioned Natsume Soseki has been such a, an important figure in Japanese literature, and there have been numerous studies on him t- as well. But your book focuses on the role of the property system, which I think is a not-so-often-seen topic in Soseki studies. So what prompted you to write on this topic? You write that there's a, a lot of work on Natsume Soseki. It's kind of daunting if you if you look at the Japanese scholarship because there's literally thousands of books and tens of thousands of articles on him, and it feels like absolutely everything that could be said about Natsume Soseki has probably already been said. Um, so it, it is hard to find something new to say. Um, and, and for myself, I, I actually when I was in grad school thinking about my dissertation, I, I thought about writing about Soseki, but deliberately decided not to 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 do that, uh, in part because it was hard to, f- to think of something new to say about him, and in part because I, I just I loved his work so much that I didn't want to turn it into work. I didn't want to turn Soseki into something I had to do as part of my day job, uh, and so decided to write my dissertation about uh, Shimazaki Toson, an- another writer, and then later on, uh, with some trepidation, decided to try to do some serious work on, on Soseki. Um, I remember sort of very clearly when the idea for this project came together in my mind. It was about 1998 or 1999. And I'd been thinking about William James uh, and Natsume Soseki. Natsume Soseki knew William James's work very well uh, and engaged with it in, in a number of ways. Uh, and and I, as I was thinking about this relationship, I, I was reading a book by Walter Ben Michaels called The Gold Standard and the Logic of Naturalism about American naturalism. And, and I came across a sentence in there that said that William James was an advocate of what C.B. McPherson calls possessive individualism. Uh, the, the doctrine of political philosophy, but of a philosophy in general uh, that arises from people like John Locke uh, and others that presumes that our basic relationship to ourself is a relationship of ownership. Uh, and, and so I, I got this idea that, that ownership, and particularly ownership of the self, was really central to William James. And uh, I wondered what that meant. In, in terms of Soseki's own understanding of William James. And then at the same time, I was editing a translation of Kame Hideo's book, uh, Transformations of Sensibility, the, the Phenomenology of Meiji Literature. Uh, and I encountered there a discussion uh, by Kame about how Meiji literary and scholarly discourses often use property systems as a kind of yardstick for measuring the, the degree of civilization and enlightenment that, that a, a given society has, has taken. Uh, and so having encountered this description of William James as an advocate of possessive individualism, and then this description of Meiji literature as, as working around a notion that there's a kind of social Darwinistic evolution of society based on property systems, uh, a light bulb went on over my head that this might be a, a way to think about Natsume Soseki um, because all of his works more or less re- revolve around property disputes uh, and, and the question of self-ownership. Uh, and, and just as Soseki had, had lived through this radical transformation in education systems, he'd also lived through this, this really dramatic transformation of Japan's property ownership regimes. Um, and, and, and so he had an awareness that ownership systems are contingent that the ownership systems that we have aren't written in stone, they can be changed, they can be transformed. 
Um, so I, I, I got the idea to use this as, 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 as a way of thinking about Soseki. I, I got a, a Japan Foundation fellowship to spend a year uh, at Tohoku University uh, in, in Sendai, which is where Soseki's library is housed. Uh, and so I, I went there from 2000 to 2001 and spent a year sort of retracing Soseki's own intellectual journey, looking at his books, the books that he had read, looking at the marginalia that he had written in, in the books, and, and used that to try to figure out uh, how, how Soseki thought about these, these questions. And um, after that, there was a, a long and winding path between that research 20 years ago and then the publication of the book. A, a lot of other projects intervened along the way, including uh, a translation that I, I co-edited of Soseki's theory of literature. Um, and as I thought about this project, it started to grow new arms and legs and started to get bigger and bigger. Uh, I started thinking maybe it should be a book about world literature uh, and property. Uh, but then about three or four years ago, decided basically I should just go back to the original conception of the book uh, and finish it up. Uh, and so I was, I was able to do that. I, I think the thing that I learned about this through this process is don't take 25 years on a book that that's, that's the wrong way to write it. So if there's, if there's one lesson I can pass on, it's, it's don't do that. Cool. I guess I'll, I'll make sure to uh, keep that advice in mind when I try to turn my dissertation into a book. <laughs> don't take 25 years. No, don't, don't do it. <laughs> so you speak of this property system that was very important to Soseki. What's the social context of this new property system that was installed in 19, uh, sorry, 1898? What major changes did it bring? And what about new problems that emerged from this new law? Yeah, as, as I discuss in the book, uh, there was a, a set of really massive reforms that the, the new Meiji government undertook as it tried to transform Japan from a weak country that was really on the verge of being colonized uh, into what became the major imperial power uh, in the region. And, and these transformations, I think, in many ways revolved around uh, property systems. Uh, the, the reforms in the property system had an impact on just about every aspect of, of, of life in Meiji Japan. Um, the central political issue of the day was the unequal treaties that Japan had signed in the 1850s and, and wanted to revise uh, to, to get itself recognized as being the equal of, of, of the European uh, imperial powers. And getting the unequal treaties revised required bringing Japan's economy into sync with the economies of the other great powers. And, and the, the property, the, the reform of the property system was, was a major component of that. We have the, the, the civil code from 1898, as you mentioned. We have the Berne Treaty for Intellectual property rights. We have a lot of major reforms of the property system carried out throughout the, the era. It all starts in the early 1870s with the reform of the taxation system, uh, that there's a changeover from a taxation system in which uh, taxes are paid in kind as a percentage of, of, of the crop yield that's produced on farmland. That's the old system. The new system is based on is paid in cash, uh, and it's based on the value of land as property. It, it starts with the presumption that land is alienable property that has a cash value. Um, the reforms continued through the Meiji Constitution uh, and the institution of national elections and the National Diet in 1890. To vote in the elections, you had to be male, you had to be 25, and you had to be a property owner. Um, 
Then we have the, the Meiji Civil Code in 1898. Uh, and from the 1890s and after the turn of the century, increasingly, we see the extension of this new property regime into Japan's empire, uh, its expanding empire. It's both a, a technology of imperial domination, like the British Empire and other empires before it. Japan knows that one of the ways to control a colony is to institute a new property system in the colony. Um, and it's also a, an ideology of, of civilization and enlightenment. It becomes one of the ideologies used to, to supposedly demonstrate Japan's uh, advanced civilization and thereby justify its, its colonization. So we have all these legal system, these changes in the legal system, and at the same time we have intellectual discourses of individualism, Rishin uh, Shusei, success. Uh, we have new modern disciplines like sociology, law, psychology, history. All of these uh, involve new ideas of property uh, ownership. Um, and so in intellectual life, cultural life, legal practices, daily life, we see the new property system you know, having, having an enormous impact. One sort of concrete instance of how the property system really changed everything uh, was the, the plummeting divorce race in, in Japan after 1898 as a result of the civil code uh, and the way it redefined the family as, as the basic uh, unit of property ownership. Before 1898, Japan had one of the highest divorce rates in the world, and this was con considered scandalous. It was, it was considered a huge problem. Um, after 1898, the new property regime made divorce almost impossible. Uh, and after that, we get the birth of the myth that, that Japanese people don't get divorced, which is usually explained through things like traditional cultural values or, or, or reasons like that. But I think in many ways, it's really a result of this new property system. It's, um, it sounds like a very, very important um, change in Japan's history. And I think I've seen um, quite a few studies talking about this new system from the aspects of um, economic history or political history. But until I read your book, it never really clicked for me that this theme appeared in many of Soseki's works. So in the book, you argue that Soseki sought to interpret and reimagine or imagine beyond this property law. Um, what are some of the works that represent this attempt and how did he do it? Yeah, it's, you know, the, the basic argument in the book, as you said, is that both in his fiction and in his literary theory, Soseki was, 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 was thinking about and practicing literature as the site of a different kind of economy, a, a different set of practices, different modes for sharing and, and for belonging uh, that were alternatives to what was becoming the modern common sense of, of, of the property regime. Um, his novels all more or less revolve around questions of property ownership. The, the, the plots are set in motion when somebody dies and property is, is, is inherited, or there are uh, more metaphorical questions about self-ownership. Do we really own ourselves? Uh, do we, you know, can, can we own ourselves? Um, and also, you know, narratives about the family system. Do family members, are they the property of the family? Do, for instance, women belong to their husbands or, or, or to their fathers? What is the status of, of, a, of a female subject in terms of, of property? All of these, these elements of the property system become, these are the raw materials out, out of which Soseki builds his, his stories. 
Um, and sometimes this gets this gets very explicit. There's if you read "I Am a Cat," which we've already mentioned, there are these really wonderful passages where the cat just directly criticizes human property systems in the Meiji period. Um, it's a parody of, of anthropology and, and and sociology. The cat is like this 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 participant observer who's looking at the property systems of Meiji Japan and saying, this is barbaric. Uh, these people are immoral. They have, you know, they're, they're completely uncivilized because they don't understand uh, property. So we see this in, in, in his stories, both, you know, explicitly and implicitly using the property system as a way to create interesting stories. Um, but I think we also see it in his literary theory. Um, one of the, the most interesting and strange elements of, of Soseki's career is this book called The Theory of Literature, which is a, a massive attempt uh, that he published in 1907 to, 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 to create a, a fully scientific theory of literature uh, that would be valid in all times and all places. Uh, and, and the model that he comes up with uh, to describe what literature is, I, I talk about at length in the book, and it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but I think we, we can see that model for understanding literature as, as being a challenge to the basic norms of, of possessive individualism. I, I think Soseki explicitly tries to describe literature as an inherently shared experience. It's an experience that doesn't belong to the author. It doesn't belong to the fictional characters in the work. It doesn't belong to the reader. It's an experience that that emerges through the shared uh, coming together of those three uh, streams of consciousness into a single stream of consciousness, um, and and that we can't understand what literature is without thinking about this 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 experience that's shared in common. Uh, and, and so in some ways, that's the source of, of the title of my book, A Fictional Commons, is, is trying to think about literature itself as a place for practicing something other than a private uh, property regime. Fascinating. And this um, searching for self that you mentioned sort of connects to my next question. Uh, in chapter two, you turn to literature that may be conceived as a kind of madness or loss of self. I guess in a way, um, I am a, I'm a cat can be interpreted that way, the, the loss of self in a cat or vice versa. Um, and this is related to the rise of the modern discipline of psychology. Can you talk more about this part? Sure. Um, Soseki, you know, in addition to being you know a, a great novelist and, and theorist of literature, was also keenly interested in science in in his day, uh, and he was colleagues and friends with with some of the scientists who who founded the discipline of psychology in Japan. He was really there at the beginning of, of psychology as as a new academic discipline. Um, he studied directly with Motohara Yujiro at Tokyo Imperial University, the founder of, of modern psychology in Japan. His classmates include people like Matsumoto. Tataro, who were, again, really fundamental figures in establishing psychology as, as a new scientific discipline. Um, and, and, and so when Soseki decided that he, he wanted to, to, to pursue this fully scientific theory of literature, uh, one of the, the things he did to prepare for that was to undertake a, a pretty extensive survey of this new science of psychology. And he read extensively in the works of, of people like William James, who I've already mentioned, but also Wilhelm Wundt and, and many other people who were working in the laboratory trying to create this new science of the mind and, and of, of our uh, um, consciousness. Uh, and in reading through these works, 
Soseki was was continually, I think, encountering the ways in which this new discipline of psychology used possessive individualism as one of its basic assumptions. Uh, when you read psychology from the late 19th and early 20th century, you constantly find property systems used as a metaphor for explaining our psychic operations. Um, it's like one of the central metaphors of psychology in this period, and particularly the early William James. It's hard to go more than a page or two without coming across another use of property as, as the basic metaphor for explaining uh, how our psyches work. Um, so Soseki encountered that, but he also encountered, I think, expressions of skepticism uh, over this model. And, and you can find that particularly in later William James uh, in works like uh, Varieties of Religious Experience. Uh, and, and so Soseki's narratives, the stories that he writes, frequently explore this issue. Um, he oftentimes writes about characters who feel entirely alienated, not only from the world around them, but also from themselves. Uh, they feel unable not just to own property, and, and Soseki's characters are continually losing their property, uh, but also unable to own their own selves. They feel uncertain, uh, an uncertain relationship in, in terms of how they should be relating to themselves. Um, he also writes narratives uh, that suggest different kinds of economies and different kinds of systems beyond uh, private property. Um, I, I argue that some of his narratives should be thought of as, as constituting gift economies. Uh, the commons, uh, a, a sort of cooperative sharing model is another system that we see suggested in his works. Um, and so if we look at a novel like Kokoro, one of his most famous works, the, the last half of Kokoro is, is literally takes, it literally takes the form of a last will and testament of, of a man trying to pass on his property to another person. But the thing he's trying to pass on is actually a wealth of personal experiences uh, his his own life experience is the property that he's trying to pass on uh, to 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 the reader of that will. Um, so I, here again, I think we see Soseki sort of playing with the structures of property and thinking about how we understand our own psychologies and our own individuality or in our own consciousness as, as uh, through systems of ownership and and also seeing that that doesn't always work. Um, and there's a famous Soseki was always associating literature with madness. Um, there's there's a famous passage in the preface to to the theory of literature where he he cites his own uh, severe bouts of what he calls neurasthenia uh, uh, as being the source of his his gift of literature. That it's thanks to his madness that he's able to write. Um, and and you know I I think in in a sense if the property system as it was becoming common sense in this period was one of the figures that was available to describe what rationality or sanity looked like. Uh, madness became a, a place for, for exploring what something, something else would look like, what would something that would not be a, a property system. And, and I, I think for Soseki, this was, this was really central to his idea of what literature should be. I want to uh, connect this next part with uh, what you mentioned earlier about his theory of literature. So he explores the meaning of literature in a sociological sense as well, other than talking about madness and the loss of self. Um, and we know that during this time of uh, Japanese literature, there were writers and intellectuals trying to approach this 
um, issue of literature from many different aspects, um, considering the influences that they were getting from Europe. Um, Soseki is one of those who approached through science. Um, there are many others who tried to explain literature from aspects of philosophy and aesthetics theories. But how did Soseki respond to um, modern norms of property through his theories of literature and knowledge in general? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, and, and, and part of this, we, we should think about how he used sociology in, in, in the theory. I, I think he was trying to think about literature as a distinct realm of experience that we we share in in, in, in the modern world, and and. Again, he was interested in coming up with a, a universal scientific theory of literature that would be valid in all places and at, at all times. Uh, a, a theory that you could apply to, it, to to classical Chinese philosophical texts and to contemporary romantic novels. What was the thing that they all shared? Um, and part of this for him was a certain kind of psychological experience that a reader undergoes when reading a text, but he was also keenly aware that there was a, that this was social that, that our, our responses as readers to texts was in part determined by the cultures and the societies in which we lived, uh, that that we are shaped by the world around us, and that our our ways of feeling and responding to to literary texts are determined in part by the, the, the place and time in which we read. There's a, a wonderful sentence in uh, the theory of, of literature where he says, maybe someday Shakespeare will be forgotten. That that the experience of reading Shakespeare is is not necessarily a universal experience. It, certain people at certain places and certain times read Shakespeare and have that intense experience of literature. Uh, but it, he, he's able to conceive that there might be societies structured in different ways where people would read Shakespeare and not ex not have that experience of literature, and then Shakespeare would stop being literature at that point. Um, so, in putting together his his his, his theory of literature, he, as I've already said, he, he did a fairly extensive survey of psychology as it existed in uh, 1900 to 1902 when he was doing this work, and then he also did a survey of, of the new discipline of sociology uh, as it was emerging in this in this time period as a new academic discipline, um, and mostly the the works he read as part of this survey came out of the Anglo-American sort of Spencerian liberal tradition of, of sociology. And they tended to, to, to stress that property systems were an important uh, stepping stone in, in civilization, that you could, in, in looking at social structures and public morality, the development of a private property system was one of the ways to, to measure how far a, a society had come along in, in sort of a social Darwinistic model of, 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 of of civilization. And of course, in, in these Anglo-American texts that he was reading, Western Europe was perceived as having reached the highest stage uh, and everything else around the world was, was perceived as being at, at a more backward stage. Uh, and, and so Soseki read this, he borrowed a lot of this sociology for his theory and was really interested in trying to think about how the structure of society impacts the way that we, we, we read literature. But he was also fairly skeptical of, of the sociology that he read. And 
looking at the books that he owned, in particular, when we come to passages where socio European sociologists, sociologists are talking about Japan, you can start to see the smoke coming out of Soseki's ears. He gets really angry at the way Japan is being objectified uh, as, as an object of, of sociological knowledge. Um, and and I, I think he was much more skeptical of sociology than he was of, of the psychology he was reading. And it's interesting, and you know, I, I write about it in the book, I, I think this skepticism towards that sort of liberal Anglo-American tradition of sociology was in fact shared by a new generation of sociologies, the sociologists that were emerging on the European continent at the same time, people like Max Weber and, and uh, Emile Durkheim and Marcel Mauss, who were much more skeptical about the condition of modern European society and, and much less inclined to celebrate uh, European modernity and instead think about the pathologies of, of modernity and, and, and to look for alternative models uh, in other societies. Uh, Soseki never read those sociologists. They weren't introduced into Japan until really after his, his death. Uh, but I think, and, and I argue in the book, that when we read his fiction, we can see parallels between the kind of sociological imagination that Soseki is, is using to write his fiction and the, the kinds of ideas that were being developed by this new generation of sociologists. So in one of my chapters, I argue that Mauss's theory of the gift and the notion of a, of, of a gift economy provides a, a really useful way of thinking about Soseki's novel uh, until the spring equinox and beyond, which, and Soseki, of course, had not read Mauss, but I think that there's some really interesting parallels in the sociological imagination. Um, and then I, I think the other thing to, to point out is that when Soseki tries to define what literature is scientifically in terms of sociology, uh, he explicitly rejects the kind of, of social Darwinistic model of, of, of sort of civilization and enlightenment in the realm of literature. He, he, he sort of buys that model as maybe that explains how economies work. Maybe that explains how science works, but that model doesn't work for literature. Um, he insists, and he, he says this quite explicitly in a number of places in his work, that literature is, is, is a domain that changes through time, and it's constantly changing, but it does not follow a teleological model. It's not developing to higher and higher, more advanced and more civilizational forms. And, and for Soseki, I think that way of thinking about literature was really crucial to him, that, that literature followed a different set of norms that weren't necessarily um, progressive. Um, and, and again, I think this is tied into his, uh, his skepticism about the, the, the private property system that developed. And how does um, his uh, exploration of sociology relate to his reaction to colonialism in literature or, I guess, in uh, society in general? Because we were talking, we're talking about private ownership and colonialism is very much about owning other people's body and other people's property. So how does um, Soseki respond to colonialism? How does he criticize it through his literary works? That's a really important question. And, you know, I think we can say for starters, that Soseki was was keenly aware of, of what we would call something like British cultural imperialism, uh, and, and the claims. And, you know, he was a scholar of British literature, and so this was a, a domain in which he 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 worked and, and lived professionally. Uh, 
he was highly suspicious of of claims for an inherent cultural superiority of, of, of British literature and British culture, particularly in relationship to Japan and the rest of Asia. So in that sense, I think he was he was keenly aware of issues of, of colonial domination. Um, but I, I also don't think that we can say that, that Soseki criticized uh, colonialism in his works when it came to the Japanese empire. Uh, that if, the, the most egregious example we have of this is the travelogue he published uh, depicting his 1909 journey through Manchuria and Korea, uh, in which he seems to reproduce all of the racist stereotypes that were circulating in the Japanese empire about Chinese and Koreans, and seems to be partaking in Japanese imperialist discourse. And, and uh, you know, I think it's it's important to remember that he, you know, Sosei was part of the social elite of Meiji Japan had come through really the, the the very highest track of education. And the people that were running the empire were his classmates and friends. He, he was very familiar with, with the bureaucrats who were running the Japanese empire. The colonies show up frequently in his works, as they do in the works of most writers from this uh from of, of his generation from Japan, and so it's it's hard, I think, to find a direct critique of colonialism in his work, and that's one of the reasons that, for example, Korean scholars uh, like Pak Yuha and and, and Cho Yong Il are very critical of Soseki. They 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 see his uh, participation in Japanese imperialism, and and I don't think that they're wrong. But I, I think that we can also find a sense in his works during, you know, and of course he's writing during the period of, of the, the, the Japanese empire's greatest expansion, uh, this sense that something is going terribly wrong in Japan uh, as it transforms itself into the, 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 the regional imperial power. Uh, many people point to his lecture, The Civilization of Modern Day Japan, as one of the places where we can really see this discomfort that Soseki has, this, this sense of dread that, that he has about how things are going in Japan. Um, and, and many people have read that lecture uh, and, and other pieces by Soseki as really sort of foreshadowing the coming disaster of fascism and, and, and World War II, that there's a sense that he sees the direction Japan is moving in, including its expansion in, in, in Asia. And sees that it's it's heading in a, in a terrible place, um, and and so in the book, the place where I most explicitly take this up is in my discussion of of his novel Kokoro. Um, Kokoro was was serialized in 1914 uh, in in the Asahi newspaper, like all of Soseki's major novels. It was originally printed in daily installments in in a newspaper, and and so by by appearing in the newspaper in 1914, it, it coincided with really what was one of the most violent phases in in Japan's colonization of Korea. This is the period of the Land Cadastral Survey when Japan had annexed Korea in 1910 and started to impose a new property regime on the colony, uh, which provoked often violent resistance to Japanese rule. Uh, and in the book, I, I sort of trace how we can see in the pages of the Asahi newspaper in early 1914, on one page, we have the installment, the latest installment of Kokoro. And then on the next page, we have a story about the violence of imperialism and the clear unhappiness of the Korean people with the imposition of the new property system there. Um, and the novel Kokoro ends with this really 
um, dark sense of a decisive change that has been taking place in Japan. Um, the character Sensei, who who narrates the second half of the novel, tells a story about how when he was a young man, he feared that he was going to be the victim of, of theft. Uh, and as a result of this fear and paranoia, he spent his entire life suspicious of everyone around him and unable to trust the people around him. And then to his horror, realizes that he was the thief all along, that he was precisely what he was most afraid of. Uh, and this leads to his suicide at, at the end of the novel. Uh, and I think one way we can read the novel is is as being kind of an allegory for, for Japan itself, uh, a Japan which at the beginning of the Meiji period feared that it was going to be the victim of dispossession, that it was going to be colonized at the hands of the imperial powers. And now in 1914, coming to the end of the, the Meiji period, comes to the horrible realization that perhaps it's been the thief all along. And again, this isn't a direct uh, condemnation of, of, of colonialism in Soseki's works, but I think it's a place where we can see his whether it's conscious or unconscious on, on his part, his, his real sense that something is going disastrously wrong. And I think that this involves the empire and, and, and of course, the property systems. That's a really great point. Now, how does Sosaki's interpretation of the property law fit in a broader intellectual environment at this time? Um, as a member of the literary field, or in Japanese, the bundan, did his discussion of contemporary issues have any effect on his fellow intellectuals and fellow novelists? I think the answer is yes and no. The, his th theoretical works, particularly the theory of literature, were not terribly influential at the time. Uh, people found particularly the theory of literature just to be strange. I think people still find it strange. It's, it's, it's an absolutely insane work. It's one of the reasons I, uh, I and, and my, my co-translators wanted to tackle it because it's, it's just such a strange work. Um, and that didn't have – people read it, but I don't think it had that much impact. Um, but his literary fiction, on the other hand, was, was, of course, enormously influential, both on a generation of newspaper readers uh, and also on literary critics, uh, and in particular on, on a coterie of young writers and thinkers that, that gathered around Soseki and who would come to dominate Japanese intellectual and cultural life in the decades after his, his, his death. Um, and his 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 critique of modern society, his his sense that ethically something was going wrong, was I think enormously influential. But I also think, in many ways, particularly as his disciples became the the primary interpreters of, of Soseki's legacy, that many of the more radical aspects of of his critique were ignored or or misunderstood, um, and. When I came upon the idea of thinking about Soseki in relationship to property systems and, and thinking of his, his work as, as a kind of critique of, of modern norms of property ownership, I had the, what I thought was the really smart idea of, of going to look and see what proletarian literature writers and critics must have thought of Soseki. Because in a sense, if I'm right, and, and, and Soseki's uh, works should be thought of as, as, as really a critical intervention in the rise of this new property system, then in, in, in a way, the proletarian literature writers should be the, the next stage or the heirs to Soseki's project. Um, and I was surprised to find out that, in fact, 
they almost entirely ignored Natsume Soseki. There's almost nothing in the enormous body of, of important literary criticism and other kinds of writings that came out of the, 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 the proletarian literature uh, movement. Um, and so in, in, in that sense, I, I think if we think of if his critique of, 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 of private property wasn't carried on or he wasn't seen as a source, uh, an intellectual inspiration for later critics who, who explicitly took up questions of capitalism and, and the property system. But I think that there's all the way through, both during his lifetime and the decades after his, his lifetime and in the last 50 years as well, there's a long tradition that's intact of thinking of Soseki's writings as, as constituting a really important ethical critique of modern society and as, as being someone who really analyzed skillfully and in creative ways the pathologies of alienation and, and dislocation that a modern society, including its property system, produces. So in that sense, I, th- I think he has had a, an impact. So historically, um, did any of the problems that he pointed out got um, solved or improved during the years to come? The, I mean, I think, you know, the property system continued to be central. I, I gave you a narrative at the beginning of, of how the property system developed. I think in some ways we, we can see 1925 as the moment when the proper, the modern property system really achieved its mature form. Um, that's when the property qualification was removed for voting. Um, you didn't have to own property to, to vote. You still had to be male and an adult to vote in the elections. But at the same time, the new peace preservation law made it illegal to question, to, to, to suggest the overthrow of, of, of the pro- private property system in Japan. It, it literally became a thought crime to suggest that the, the capitalist property regime should be overthrown uh, so that it, 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 it not only became common sense, it became illegal to question the regime. I think in, in many ways, is we the, the kinds of questions that Soseki was, was, was wrestling with, we're still very much wrestling with today when we look at like the internet and the ways that uh, online culture uh, intersects with 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 our economy, the questions of who owns what, uh, when we deal in social media, who has the property stake in it. These are still questions that we're still wrestling with, um, and there's there are still attempts, I think, to naturalize certain forms of, of of property ownership as being just the way things are supposed to be. And I, and one of the things I think Soseki still you know still speaks to us today is to remind us that no there are lots of ways to organize property regimes uh, and there are lots of ways to to imagine different alternative ways of, of organizing our societies and, and our cultures now how should we understand Soseki's concern as a man of the modern age this property law under the influence of, you know, the civilization and enlightenment campaign, it's supposed to represent something new, something forward, something that's more advanced. But Soseki clearly didn't like it. So what um, do you think that Soseki's concern about the property law may reflect um, some of his contemporaries' concerns about Japan's modernization process. Yeah, I mean, 
the initial, I think, response to to Soseki, both in Japan and then outside of Japan, as as he was introduced in translation to to other places, the initial response was to celebrate him as as the first great modern Japanese novelist, that he was seen as the one in Japan in the process of, of the emergence of modernity. After decades of experimentation with this thing called the modern novel, he was the one who got it right, was the first one to really master the modern novel. And, and so he was the first modern in, in, in modern Japanese literature. I think in, in more recent decades, this view has been revised and but in some ways, it's it's we're getting the mirror image of it, which is it's not so much a celebration of Soseki as the first great modern writer, but a celebration of Soseki as the first great critic of, of modernity in Japan, the first person who really put their fingers on what was wrong with modernity or the problems of modernity. Um, and the people who celebrated Soseki as, as the first great modern novelist, I, I always think of them... I, I, I think that they're celebrating him as the last great novelist of the 19th century. And and they want to put him together with great writers like Flaubert and Tolstoy, and and show that he he sort of carried the torch uh, of of nineteenth century realist psychological realism. Um, I I prefer the second view of of Soseki as as the, the the first great critic of modernity, and in that sense, rather than thinking of him as the last great novelist of the nineteenth century, I always prefer to think of him as the first great novelist of the 20th century. And in the book, I, I sort of, you, you'll see that without directly doing this, I'm constantly setting him alongside writers like Kafka, uh, James Joyce, Gertrude Stein, who I think are his real peers. Um, I, I think Soseki was, was really one of the founders of what we now call modernism, you know, which is ironically literature that, you know, reflects very critically on the assumptions that have become modern sense in, in modernity. And, you know, I, th I think that's one of the reasons that he still speaks so strongly to us. It's, it's one of the reasons that high school students and college students in Japan still love Soseki and, and seek out his works to read, even when they're not required to read his works. Um, and I, I, as someone who's, who's really loved Soseki for the last 40 years. And, and you know, I, I said at the beginning how I really think this discovery for me of Soseki changed the course of my life. Um, it's, it's gratifying to finally see in the English-speaking world, I think people are starting to catch up to Soseki in the English-speaking English world. We're starting to see more translations of his work. We're starting to see, uh, I think, a, a greater recognition of, of, of his, how inter his importance and, and of, of what a, a unique and interesting figure he was. Um, and in that we're still very much living in the property regime that Soseki understood and, and whose introduction he lived through, I, I think his writings are still extremely relevant to us as we still try to figure out what other possibilities might exist for imagining some sort of different way of living in the world. Well, I hope your book encouraged more readers to get interested in Soseki and maybe pay attention, pay more attention to the problems with the property law in Japan. Thank you. Thank so, you so much. Work. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much for taking your time to talk with us about your new book. Oh, this was fun. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me, Jingyi. Thank you. And for our listeners to learn more about Natsume Soseki and modern Japanese literature or Japan's modern property law, make sure to check out this new book, A Fictional Commons, Natsume Soseki and the Properties of Modern Literature, 
by Dr. Michael Burdash. This is Jingyi from New Books in Japanese Studies, and I will see you in our next episode.